Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist's Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. This month's episode is sponsored by Millipore Sigma and 10X Genomics. Millipore Sigma is a leading company for innovative, trusted products for genomic and protein sample prep, reliable antibodies, proteins and enzymes, advanced cell culture, and lab water solutions. They provide researchers with best-in-class technologies, expertise, and services to accelerate discovery, including Zoomab recombinant antibodies that offer high specificity and reliable consistency. 10X Genomics builds solutions for interrogating biological systems at a resolution and scale that matches the complexity of biology. Their rapidly expanding suite of products, which includes instruments, consumables, and software, enables customers to make fundamental discoveries across multiple research areas, including cancer, immunology, and neuroscience. Odors bombard the human nose every day, whether the odors register consciously or not. The way the human brain processes these odors has the potential to characterize disease and shape everyday human interaction. In this month's episode, we explore the world of odor and how scientists use the sense of smell to better understand the human brain, disease, and behavior. Tiffany Garbutt from the Scientists Creative Services team spoke with Noam Sobal, Stella Professor of Neurobiology and Director of the Israeli National Center for Human Brain Imaging and Research at the Weizmann Institute of Science to learn more. Can you describe the smell of a candy cane or logs on a fire? Maybe the candy cane smells minty and the logs smell earthy. Some people claim that freshly fallen snow has a smell. Perhaps it smells crisp? We are surrounded by odors from the pleasant scents surrounding the holidays to the sweaty smell of stress, the subtle smell of fear, and the sinister smell of disease. Our conscious and subconscious perception of these smells influences our biological and behavioral responses. Noam Sobol studies how the brain figures out the world of smell. That the sense of smell really holds in it all the fundamental questions on how the brain encodes and stores information. It's a very effective telling system in which to learn how the nervous system solves the problem that it's trying to solve. If I'll give you an orange to smell, when you're walking around in the rainforest at 80% humidity, or or I'll give you an orange to smell when you're marching through the Kalahari Desert at 0% humidity, In both cases, you'll tell me that's an orange. That's utterly amazing because chemically, your nose saw something very, very different. The thing that reached your nose at 80% humidity and the thing that reached your nose at at 0% humidity are are very, very different from each other. One is full of water and one is not. Chemically, that's a huge difference. Yet, you know that's an orange. That's utterly amazing. Scientists can match stimuli to perceptions for many of our senses. For example, color can be determined and defined by the wavelength emitted. This understanding of vision and the ability to link the stimulus to its perception is what ultimately led to the digitization of color and the invention of color television. Likewise, sound correlates to frequency. Unlike these senses, there is no objective scale to link the perception of smell with its causative stimulus. People characterize smells by relying on comparisons to other odors. They will say, this smells like lemons, or this smells like roses. But Noam Sobel wants to change that 
he recently solved a centuries-old challenge to objectively characterize orders. Our primary goal in trying to understand the sensory system is to uncover the rules that relate the structure of the stimulus to its ultimate perception. And this is a field uh, in research referred to as psychophysics. In olfaction, we did not have that measure uh, that related to perception. And, and this was a major hindrance towards understanding how the system works. We've been dealing with this question for, you know, for a good 20 years. Many, many groups that have been trying to relate odor perception to odor structure for specific verbal descriptors. So if you can say uh, how lemony something is, and they'll try to figure out how lemony it is from, their, from its structure, and so on and so forth. And this was a mistake that we made in the past as well. And it, it, it hits several dead ends, including the fact that the use of languages in this respect is not necessarily common across individuals, and which language should you use, and the sort of critical moment we had in, in our efforts to doing this was that we shifted in, from the world of descriptors into the world of perceptual similarity. That is, we stopped trying to predict if something smells like a lemon or like an orange, but rather we just tried to see if we could identify the physical chemical aspects of, of odor that make two odors smell similar. To solve this problem, Sobel and his team created 14 aromatic blends comprised of about 10 molecular components each. They recruited approximately 200 volunteers and asked them to smell two aromatic blends at a time and rank their similarity. By the end of the experiment, each participant evaluated 95 odorant pairs. Sobel and his team then compared these rankings to the structure and properties of 4,100 odorants stored in their electronic database. They computationally converted the participant rank similarity of two odorants into radians based on the distance between the known structure of the two odorants. If two smells are 0.05 radians apart, then they are perceptually identical. Let's say you'll take 100 molecules and mix them. And I will throw them into my algorithm, and they'll land 0.05 radians away from orange. Then I'll tell you, you've mixed orange. If you land somewhere between lemon and banana. I'll be able to tell you, look, you made something smelling sort of lemon-banana-like, which is exactly the way our brain works in the sense of smell, right? When you, we can now not only predict similarity, we can, we can determine identity. Up till now, you know, it was, it, it was largely repeated that there's no scientist or perfumer for that matter who you can give a novel odorant mixture and they'll tell you how it will smell. And we solve that. You can give me any novel mixture and I'll tell you how it will smell. Rosanna Gambell said, we have no way of measuring smell. And until you cannot measure the difference between rose, violet, and asafoetida, you will have no signs of odor. And so we've solved exactly that. Because I can tell you now the distance in radians between rose, violet, and asafoetida, the mustardy spice. In the paper, we measure the distance between rose, violet, and asafoetida. And we showed that our measure exactly predicts what people say is the difference between rose violet and asafoetida. Not only can Sobel distinguish the subtle differences between smells, he can also recreate a smell using completely different compounds, essentially getting the smell of lemon without ever using lemon odorants. 
Sobol's ranking system is accurate enough to produce the first-ever smell metamers, a term used in vision to describe non-overlapping mixtures or wavelengths that produce the same color. The digitization of color metamers is what makes the technology of color television possible. In fact, Sobel and his team are planning experiments that use the same technology to build an olfactory version of the telephone and television, essentially the universal childhood dream of smell-o-vision. More immediately, scientists can mix their own unique concoction of odorants to achieve the same scent as an expensive perfume, or they can use the technology to mask unpleasant odors. This is kind of amusing. You know, you become a scientist, you hope that maybe someday something you did will, you know, cure cancer and heart disease. Well, the first product that came out of my science is something that treats the odor of the kitty litter box. So this is my contribution to, to humanity, is that I've solved the kitty box odor. But, but again, to, to tie this back into the science, how does this happen? Is because I can take any odor profile, and I can tell you what we need to mix it with to reach a, a known target. So let's say I want your kidney liver to smell like rose. All I need to know is what are the molecules that are in the odor of your kitty liver, and then I can figure out what molecules will mix with them to generate rose. What is this good for? One thing it's good for is just computationally dealing with this entire world of odor. Ultimately, we want to understand how your brain figures out the world of smell. I mean, that's what interests us. And one of the keys you have to know in order to figure out how your brain does that is you have to have a sense of the dimensionality of the question. There are three known dimensions of vision, red, green, and blue, that correspond to three types of cones in the retina. In contrast, humans have at least 350 different types of olfactory receptors. Approximately 5% of the human genome is devoted just to coding different types of olfactory receptors. For years, this led scientists to assume that the dimensionality of how the brain processes smell was too complex to understand. Sobel and his team use their logistical ranking of odorants to address this question. They place hundreds of odorant molecules and mixtures in a hypothetical cloud. They then computationally drew a line through the cloud to see how often they encountered odorants that were definitely discriminable from other odorants. By estimating the rate at which they encountered similar odorants in this hypothetical cloud, Sobel's team estimated smell dimensionality. So it's definitely not a 350-dimensional space. Uh, in fact, we can say that at most, it's a six-dimensional space, which would also be frightening, by the way. But, but still, you know, six-dimensional is not 350-dimensional. It's taught us something really meaningful about the world of odor because it's taught us that it's a far lower dimensionality than we had previously thought. And that means that we may one day understand it. Odor and smell can reveal not only the mysteries of how the human brain processes stimuli from the senses, but also the mysteries of disease. Throughout history, physicians have diagnosed disease by its smell. The urine from people with diabetes reportedly smells like rotten apples, and the skin of people with typhoid smells like a butcher's shop. But even diseases that have not been historically linked to a particular smell have an odor. Disease, at the end of the day, are, are a metabolic process of some sort. And metabolic processes have metabolites, and metabolites have smell. So the, the rationale by which disease has an odor is very straightforward. And indeed, there's lots of evidence uh, supporting that. 
Scientists have used canine noses, human noses, and most recently electronic noses to detect the subtle, often unnoticeable smell of a range of diseases from lung cancer to COVID-19. Electronic noses contain an array of small electronic sensors that feed into a processing station on a computer. These sensors are coated with a variety of chemicals that give them unique selectivity. When an odor passes over these coated sensors, they absorb a certain portion of that odor based on its chemical properties, which changes the electrical resistance of the sensors to determine the odor. Unlike mass spectrometers, electronic noses do not identify individual molecules. Rather, they capture the overall shape of the odor. COVID landed on us, and on one hand, completely put an end to all our work because our lab primarily studies human participants in experiments. We could not bring participants into experiments anymore because of risk of infection. So we were really, in one way, effectively closed down. And yet, in our lab, we have a few uh, commercial e-noses. So we said, well, since we can't continue our regular work anyway, and we have several of these devices sitting around, so let's see if we can do anything with them. Electronic noses are not perfect detectors and are often influenced by other smells in the environment. For this reason, electronic noses often need to be trained and consistently deployed in a particular location. So if you take a bunch of people who are hospitalized for COVID-19, then there's the smell of the hospital. There's the smell of the food of the hospital. There's the detergent that was used to uh, wash their hospital clothes. And there's the treatment, whatever it is they were getting. All these things are common to the COVID group and are not present in, in, the, in the control group. There is little value in detecting COVID-19 patients that have already been diagnosed. Sobel and his group wanted to train their electronic noses to detect COVID-19 in patients who had not yet been diagnosed. They set up electronic nose stations right next to a COVID-19 PCR-based testing site. We skipped this notion of developing e-noses in the lab and then testing them in the field. And we said, no, you have to develop in the field. And once we did that, we achieved results that are indeed orders of magnitude lower than most other groups reporting on this. Still above chance, right? So that tells you, well, there's something there. And if you now really improve your system, you might optimize it and get it you know, at a level that's worth your effort and time. Sobel is not yet certain if he will continue to optimize his assay to detect the smell of COVID-19. His group typically studies odors as an element of social interaction and how perturbations to the ability to detect and process smell might change as a result of disease. They study how subtle, often subconsciously detected smells elicit a biological response, ultimately affecting human social interaction and behavior. Sobel's group turned to autism spectrum disorder to explore how smells affect social interactions. They hypothesize that individuals with autism spectrum disorder respond differently to social chemical signals than unaffected individuals. They recruited volunteers with autism spectrum disorder and volunteers without autism spectrum disorder and asked them to smell two different samples of human sweat. The first sample was taken from a person after exercising. The second sample was taken from a person who skydived, a notable fear-inducing activity. The human body produces particular odors when experiencing fear, and there's evidence that others react to that fear hormonally and behaviorally. Participants without autism spectrum disorder responded to the skydiver's sweat with a heightened state of anxiety, characterized by increased skin conductivity. 
they had no response to smelling the calm sweat produced by exercising. In contrast, the smell of sweat produced by exercise increased the anxiety levels of participants with autism spectrum disorder, and the smell of sweat produced during a fearful activity lowered their anxiety responses. Sobel and his group plan to continue exploring the human response to social chemical signaling in different contexts. We also have a particular pet interest in another bodily secretion that we've identified as, as a source of social chemo signals, and that is emotional tears. So when you, when you cry, when you shed emotional tears, you're actually emitting a chemical signal that has influence on other people. And in fact, what it does is it lowers testosterone, primarily in men, but not only. We have a paper that was published in Science in 2011 entitled uh, Social Chemo Signal and Emotional Tears, where we uncover the phenomenon itself, the fact that, that if you sniff tears, you have all these responses to it. But we haven't, up till now, identified the active compounds. What are the molecules and tears that drive this signal? And we're now headed towards identifying those molecules. So I think we have some really cool stuff coming out in future on that front where we'll have an actual molecule that if you sniff it, you have a marked reduction in testosterone, which means a marked reduction in aggression. So finding that molecule is a big goal. If you look at evolution both within and across species, olfaction was there before anything else and therefore is tied into the most basic rudimentary brain structures. If you look at what parts of the mammalian brain process olfaction, then it's the limbic system, which is responsible for the most basic initial emotional responses that our brain produces. And it's tied into the respiratory system as well, into you know the basic action of breathing. So at all fundamental levels, olfaction is tied into the most basic processes of life. And therefore, this begs with it this significance. Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Tiffany Garbutt. Thank you again to Millipore Sigma and 10X Genomics for sponsoring this episode. Join us in January as we discuss how researchers modulate stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes to improve persistence and remuscularize hearts after cardiac infarction. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you have a wonderful and safe holiday season.